Revelation, we read about the creatures around the throne singing, holy, holy, holy. How good to be able to join in with them this morning. Thanks, team. Um, Zoe and I went up to Auckland a couple of weeks ago to speak at Eden Community Church. Um, <laughs> and I was, I was being quite self-congratulatory because I was like, I'm not going to forget my notes this time. I've got them. But I have forgotten the little clicker thing. Uh, so if someone wouldn't mind, that'd be great. Thanks, Huey. Um, Jeff and Christine Crawford, are you guys in here? They are. Oh, yeah, there we go. There's Jeff. Uh, they celebrated 50 years together yesterday, ladies and gents. So. Christine is a saint. Um, <laughs> Today, uh, we're starting a new series uh, and a new season. Uh, we've entered into the season of Lent. Um, and so as a church, we are looking from here on into Easter and to the story of the cross, uh, focusing on a selection of passages out of Luke. Uh, Lent is a time where traditionally uh, we give something up in order to focus uh, our commitment to God or some other similar kind of a reason, uh, people will often give up sugary drinks or caffeine or uh, devices for a certain a period of time each day. Or, you know, you can sort of, it's like the 40-hour famine. 40-hour famine used to be uh, you won't eat for 40 hours, but now it can be anything. You can fast from anything for the 40-hour famine. And same with Lent, it used to be that you just wouldn't have meat for the 40 days. Uh, but now you can sort of give up whatever you like. The point is not what you're doing. The point is why you're doing it, right? And so uh, we want to focus on our reliance on God. I kind of missed it, <laughs> the beginning of Lent, which is a shame because it meant we missed out on Shrove Tuesday when you get to eat pancakes. And the reason that I realized I'd missed it is because in my Facebook feed, uh, there's this page I follow called Historic Cookery, uh, where, and historic can be the 1970s or it could be the Babylonian Empire, like it's quite a span. Um, but people started posting stuff about what they were doing for their Shrove Tuesdays, uh, and someone is part of that, so it was Wednesday already for me, I was like, dang it, Ash Wednesday. Um, and someone posted this, and I thought, well, this is pretty good, actually. This is from 1647, uh, a guy musing on what Lent is. Is this a fast to keep the larder clean, lean and clean from fat of veals and sheep? Is it to quit the dish of flesh, yet still to fill the platter high with fish? No, tis a fast to dole thy sheaf of wheat and meat unto a hungry soul. It is to fast from strife, from old debate and hate, and to circumcise thy life. So those first couple of stanzas might be the kinds of things that would motivate a lot of people. Oh, fast time, okay. Well, just as well we're not going to eat meat for the next month or so, because flip, I'm sick of cleaning the larder, right? All the greasy fat from sheep and so on. Well, at least for the next six weeks I don't have to deal with that. Or... I'm going to give up the meat, yeah, but I'm not going to actually give anything up much because I'm just going to replace it with fish, right? So robbing from Peter to pay Paul. But actually what this is is a time to feed our souls. 
And sometimes when we're hungry, and we've done it to ourselves, right, if we fast, then we are reminded uh, that actually we're pretty frail. And it doesn't take a whole lot for us to start weakening and breaking down. And ultimately, our reliance is on God. So feeding our souls, but also reminding that last stanza there, reminding that this is a community of people doing this, relying on God business. And why are we arguing? So, uh, Luke, so we've been uh, hearing a series on the first few chapters of Revelation. Now we're going to skip around a little bit in Luke for the next few weeks. Just to give you a little bit of an overview, uh, the first couple of chapters of Luke are kind of introductory birth stories, and then the next seven chapters up to chapter nine, uh, Jesus is doing a bunch of stuff, a bunch of miracles and so on. Um, from nine to 19 is what's called the travel narrative, where he's walking, <laughs> walking and talking. And this is where a whole lot of the parables that are really famous come from. And then from uh, 19 to the end is all about Easter and the resurrection and the ascension, uh, that sort of thing. So four major sections. Today, I'm looking at the beginning of the travel narrative. So we're already skipping through it all up to chapter 9. Uh, chapter 9, in fact, the end of chapter 9, verse 51, is where we are going to start, if you wanted to start turning to it. The thing about Luke, the Gospel of Luke, is it's volume one of a two-volume series. The other volume is Acts, written by the same guy. So Luke-Acts is a way uh, that sometimes people talk about the writings of Luke. Luke-Acts, they just pair them. And if you take Luke-Acts together, it actually comes to more of the New Testament than the writings of Paul. That's pretty incredible, because Paul, we, we think of the New Testament largely, if it's not the Gospels, then it's like Paul's stuff, right? But a full third of it is Luke's stuff. And uh, it seems that Luke and Paul actually were great mates. So <laughs> the two of them provide a great deal of the platform for our faith in Christ. So this is a big deal, these two characters. Some people like to make a big deal out of points of difference between the two, but I think in the season of Lent, when we're trying to focus on our reliance on God, uh, the really good thing is that they actually work together, and they provide for us much of the New Testament. This is the section that I'd like us to read today. Oh, what's that doing there? It's in the wrong spot. Um, this is the section I'd like us to read today. As the time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messages on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Hey, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went on to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, 
but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And as my brother Nick said for me to say, may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of the word. I want to just deal something uh, real quick that some of you will be thinking, didn't you miss a bit? Because, uh, and it's there in the Māori section in red there, some translations have this extra bit that reads something like uh, Jesus talking to James and John, uh, you two don't know the spirit you have. The Son of Man hasn't come to destroy but to give life. So uh, just off the bat, there's a bit of a difference between what some of us are reading, and I want to deal with it nice and quick. It's not actually a big deal, but just to deal with the question, right? Um, the earliest manuscripts don't have the bit in red. It's a little bit later that it starts turning up. And if you, I'm assuming something here that you know about how the Bible came together. So um, when people translate the Bible, they t gather together all of the earliest uh, books and fragments of books that we've been able to find through archaeology and, and so forth um, and try and figure out the best fit for all those pieces. Usually, any discrepancies don't have much impact on how we should understand the, the passage. And this is one of those things. It doesn't actually have a whole lot of impact on how we should understand the passage, but it does actually give some... Uh, some flesh on the bones of uh, the earliest manuscripts that just say, he rebuked them. Because I, I read this, and I was like, ah, oh, boy, it would be really nice to know just what he said. What, what, what was it that they got wrong? <laughs> uh, and so, hey, look, uh, the Maori version and the King James version has it. I don't know what others have it. Um, they actually tell us, hooray. Uh, and I don't know, someone added it at some point. But it's not in the earliest stuff. There we go. Doesn't really matter. That's the short story. In this, as I read it, there are three things, basically, that are going on. Uh, he resolutely sets out for Jerusalem. That's the first part. Um, this is why, uh, this is the beginning of the travel narrative. And he knows what's coming when he gets to Jerusalem. And so whichever version you're reading, it'll have something along the lines of he resolutely set out or he set his face to or something along those lines. Like this was a determination of Jesus that despite what's coming, he's going to do it. And what it says is, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, so he looked through the difficulty to what was ultimately coming, being taken to heaven. There's that part where they're trying to go through Samaria and the disciples say, shall we call down fire? 
That's the second bit, right? And then finally, uh, there are three different interactions where people ask or he asks people to follow him. But there is something going on in here. Uh, there's a, a Bible scholar that says when you're reading Luke, it's really handy to know your Old Testament well. So it seems like Luke, he was a scholar, his Greek is amazing, but it seems like he was also very familiar with the Old Testament. Um, and this scholar describes it like this. You could go to a show where the spotlight is on the performer, and you could enjoy that show, and that's the book of Luke. Great show. But on the backdrop, in sepia tones, he says, there are images that flash up every now and then, images that are taken from stories in the Old Testament. And if you watch the guy in the spotlight and take notice of what's in the background, then you get a richer, deeper understanding of just what it is that the author's trying to achieve. And in this particular passage, there are sepia tone flashes on the back of the wall of the story of Elijah. And we're first alerted to that because Elijah was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind, chariots of fire, that kind of thing. So the alert reader is thinking, huh, something is happening here then where we're comparing Jesus with Elijah. Elijah also called down fire to destroy his enemies. And Elijah also had uh, someone following him right at the end. The guy's name was Elisha. So if you know the whole story, Elisha takes up where Elijah picks up, uh, drops off. So why are we being reminded of the Elijah story during this passage? Huh. Well, I think part of it, at least, is because we're seeing that actually Jesus is better than Elijah. We've been primed, actually, before we even get here, before we have that phrase, uh, the time he's going to be taken up to heaven, we've already met Elijah in Luke's narrative. Just a few verses before, there's a, the section on the transfiguration. So Jesus goes up onto a mountain with some of his disciples, including James and John. And uh, he's transformed, like his face becomes like lightning, and he's there talking with Moses and Elijah. So we've already been uh, primed just a few sentences earlier to think about Elijah. Now uh, he's here. But the story of Elijah, the story of Elijah where it has the destruction of his enemies is the kind of um, story where we might expect this is what victory looks like. So there's two occasions. Uh, one time, um, Elijah feels like he's the only faithful person left in Israel. And there's all these other prophets, but they're prophets to this God called Baal. And so he has a contest with them. And basically, they each set up their own altar. All the prophets of Baal spend the whole day um, crying out to Baal because the God who sends down fire to consume the offering on the altar, that must be the true God. So the, the prophets of Baal, they spend ages 
and they're wearing themselves out, and Elijah starts to make fun of them. Oh, maybe he's sleeping, or maybe he's off doing something else. Ah, cry louder. And so they do. Ah, come on, Baal, destroy our thing with fire. And he doesn't. And then Elijah, just to sort of rub it in a little bit, he's like, could you also get a whole bunch of buckets of water and just tip them all over my altar and my animal? And and actually, let's make a trench all the way around it. Just fill it up with water, please, because water obviously puts out fire. And then he says, hey, God, would you do this? Bam! And all the, all the water is taken up as well. Like, poof, obviously, uh, Elijah's God is the true God. And so that's destroyed poof, with fire. And so are the prophets. Uh, but then King Ahaziah. Nah, it's after him. Ahaziah. Or Ahaziah. I can't remember. I could look it up. It's in uh, 2 Kings 1, I think. Um, he hurts himself. And he's like, gee, I wonder if this is a fatal injury. So he sends messengers off to go consult with another god, Baal Zebub. And as they're on their way, Elijah confronts these messengers and says, is there not a god in Israel that you could consult? Do you have to go off to this foreign god, do you? And so they go back to the king and say, oh, you know what, someone sent us back. And the king's like, what was he wearing? They say, uh, like a, a hair shirt and a leather belt. Flipping Elijah. So he sends 50 soldiers with a, a captain off to Elijah, and Elijah's sitting on a hilltop like the wise old guru that he is. So, and the soldiers come up to him and say, Oi, king wants to talk to you, and fire poof, destroys them all. So uh, the king sends another bunch of 50 with a captain. Oi, king wants to talk to you, poof, destroyed. And a third bunch of 50 come. But that captain, he's like, hey, I see how it's gone with the other hundred that we sent. Would you mind? And God says to Elijah, go with him. He's not going to hurt you. And so Elijah confronts the king uh, about his foreign god worship. And so you have these kinds of stories that we're being reminded of. This is how people usually do it, right? If you want to be right, and if you want to be in power and charge, if you want to have influence, then you need to destroy the people who are in your way. But that's not how Jesus operates. And so when the disciples say, should we call down fire? This is, and this is actually a demonstration of their faith in Jesus. Should we call down fire? You could do that. He says, no. In fact, he doesn't just say no. He's like, heck no, you're naughty. He, he rebukes them right? You don't even know what you're talking about. That's not what I've come here for. I've come to save, not to kill. I like that phrase from Abraham Lincoln. It was Civil War time, and he was being told that he was being too lenient to his enemies, not being destructive enough to his enemies. Do I not totally destroy my enemies when I make them my friends. That's more along the lines that Jesus is talking about. But he does warn anyone who wants to follow him of the cost with these three stories. Just like there were three sets of 50 soldiers, (laughs) there are now three different stories of people wanting to follow. Actually, there's also three different stories of Elijah and Elisha and this business of following. Elijah says to Elisha three times, don't follow me. And Elisha says, but I want to. All right then, only this far. Don't follow me, but I want to. 
all right then, we're only this far. And the third time, Elisha says, give me a double portion of the spirit you have. You'll only get it if you see me ascend into heaven, which he does. And so he receives a double portion of Elijah's spirit, which this, the business of receiving a double portion, that's the inheritance of the firstborn, according to the Old Testament laws. So then Elisha is like Elijah's firstborn. And then we have Jesus, who has these three different stories of people who are wanting to follow, and when he's taken into heaven... Do his followers receive a double portion? Whether that's a metaphor for being his firstborn or, you know, members of his family, or if that's literally, you know, we can talk about that a little later maybe. But there's something uh, intimately close about the relationship of Elijah and Elisha and the relationship of Jesus and his followers. But there's a cost. The first guy says, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, the thing you have to remember about most of human history until the advent of trains is people usually didn't leave the village that they were born and were going to die in. They wouldn't go very far. Walking is hard. <laughs> and then you've still got to, you know, weave your cloth to sew your own clothes and, um, you know, all that stuff. So there's not a lot of spare time to go wandering around the world like we have. So uh, walking around, wandering is not something ancient people usually did. This guy was willing to follow him wherever he goes. That's pretty radical commitment. Jesus says, well, I mean, that's good. Just be warned. If you were a fox, you would have a place to go. If you were a bird, you would have a place to go. But people who follow me? No guarantees. The thing about these three stories, too, is we're never told what they decide to do with the response. Does he decide that that's, uh, that's worth it? The cost is worth it? I don't know. We can make our guesses. I don't know. But it's probably going to cost something if we're going to follow this Jesus character, particularly as he's heading towards Easter. The second person, this is Jesus making the approach. Hey, follow me. I've got to bury my dad. Let the dead bury their own dead. Let the corpses take care of their own. The thing is, if his dad was dead, he wouldn't be there talking with Jesus. He would be taking care of his dad because at that time and place, the highest, most sacred duty of any son was to make sure your dad got buried. So he wouldn't be wandering around, swanning about the place, talking with strangers. He would be taking care of his most important duty. Jesus says, that's not your most important duty. So there's going to be some kind of cost, a family cost, perhaps, to following this Jesus character. Actually, what he's probably saying by saying, let me go bury my dad, is dad's not even sick. I'm just going to wait for him to die, and then I'll be free to do what I like. Jesus says, nah, there's no indefinite delay on this business. I've called you. Instead of burying the dead, 
you should be preaching the kingdom of God. So he's even given a job, even though he doesn't really want to do it, it seems. And then the third person, (laughs) uh, Jesus says, you know, if you're going to plow straight, you can't look back. If you're going to follow me, you can't just say goodbye to whatever it is that's holding on to you at the moment. But plowing a field is not something that we often do. I've never done it. I live on a farm and I've never done it. So I really like how Tom Wright puts it. He says, actually, no, let's do it. Let's do it. No, maybe we can't. I don't know. Um, Who, just show of hands, do you know the song? Joy is the flag flying high from the castle of my heart. From the, oh, it's not very many. <laughs> is there another one that we can sing in around? Do we know any songs to sing in around? Oh, man, that's a four. Okay, music team, here's the challenge. We're going to learn some songs that we can sing in around because the thing that I really used to like about it when we did it with Nancy in Sunday school and just in the general congregation, the bit that I really liked was singing one part of the song and hearing the other part of the song at the same time, and, and I was going to, the reason I'm gesticulating like this is because I was going to divide you in half, maybe, and you'd sing this half, and, you, and then you join in at that point. <sighs> Rubbish. There's a gap in your education. <laughs> so, you're just going to have to imagine with me. Singing a line, a half of a song, while hearing the other half of the song. You know what's actually impossible to do? Is sing this half of the song while thinking about the other half of the song. You can't. You can't do it. Tom Wright says, it's like trying to sing a line of a song while you're thinking about the line you just sang. You can't do it. You've got to keep your mind on the job. If you're going to follow Jesus, you can't keep reminiscing. Ah, Remember when we used to be able to do this? Because now we're following Jesus. Can't do that anymore. Right? Keep your mind on the job. The only way to get it done properly is to keep your mind on the job. And so the cost, I don't know. That's that's a tough one for me, I think. I'm a history teacher by trade. (laughs) I'm trained to look back in order to look forward, I would also add. There are costs, and these are just like examples. From your own life, you might think of other things. But, you know, foxes and birds, this is not a get-rich-quick scheme. Uh, To all of those preachers who are into it for the money, that's not the point, you know. The thing about Elijah is, and this is what the disciples were still thinking, is if he's going to be the king, then that means he's going to have to destroy his enemies. But that's not how the kingdom of God works. It also uh, subverts our expectations of what we should be doing. If we follow Jesus, then we are his subjects. I know it's actually probably more common to talk about being citizens of the kingdom of God, but if it's a kingdom, you're a subject. There's a kind of an interesting story coming out of um, the story of the Declaration of Independence from the United States. And you, 
there was a, a woman, I think she was even a Kiwi actually, who was doing like an, an analysis of the actual document. And what Thomas Jefferson had done is he had written, there's a particular passage that talks about being citizens, but he'd had to cross out the business of being a subject because he's used to being a subject of the king, right? But nah, we're, we're not a kingdom anymore, we're citizens. So that's why I use the word subject there instead of citizen. We're subjects of King Jesus. And uh, it also changes our expectations of what that means. In chapter 22 of Luke, there's a conversation between the disciples, an argument between the disciples. No, I'm greater. How childish, right? It sort of feels childish. Nah, I'm going to be the greatest. Nah, nah, you won't because of that. I'm going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Jesus just says to them, the, the kings of the world, they lord it over their subjects, all the rest. You are not to be like that. You are not to be like that. The one of you that wants to be the greatest, you should behave like you're the youngest. If you want to rule, you need to be a slave. That's how the kingdom of God works for us. We're not going to lord it over people. No. We are going to serve people. That is costly. Because that's not glamorous. You know, when you look at Christianity globally, the cost of following Jesus is actually a lot higher than it is here. Um, these are some, you don't have to Google very hard to find this sort of stuff. Um, that top headline Christian persecution at near genocide levels. That's the British government speaking in 2019. Uh, in case you want to know ge what genocide means, like the UN definition of genocide is a crime committed with the intent to destroy a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group in part or in whole. And if you can see the statistics there at, in the bottom, uh, there's a little bit from Wikipedia in the middle talking about Christians are the most persecuted group in the world. Um, there were 360 million Christians last, so this bottom box comes from 2022, so it's talking about 2021. There were 360 million Christians who lived in countries where persecution was significant. Roughly 5,600 Christians were murdered that year. More than 6,000 were detained or imprisoned. Another 4,000 plus were kidnapped and more than 5,000 churches and other religious facilities were destroyed. Well, that's not the kind of persecution we might experience. That's not the kind of cost that we have to count here. But it is worth bearing in mind. <clears throat> if we are part of this alternative kingdom, well, I mean, why would you even do that? <laughs> if it's going to be costly. And what is it going to cost you, not just during Lent? One of the really costly things, I think, is the principle of love. Um, in John 13, 34 to 35, Jesus says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. 
And in the last few years, the rifts, the divisions in our society have been mirrored in the church, which is a shame because we should love one another. Now, the cost of that is swallowing your pride <laughs> if there is division among us. We should be serving those people. There was the ad during Super Bowl. Did you? I don't know if you. There was a ad during Super Bowl this last year, and uh, one of the lines in it is, <clears throat> and this is addressing the divisions in American uh, culture, society. Jesus loves the people you hate. <laughs> Doesn't get more blunt than that, does it? Would you like to destroy somebody? Jesus died for that person. Hmm. Why would you do it? Why would you count the cost? Why would you follow this Jesus? For the same reason Jesus did it. Um, he set his, or he knew, he set his face for Jerusalem because he knew he was about to be taken up to heaven. Looking through the difficulty to the reward. We are subjects of a new kingdom. We ought to be living differently. We should be known by our love because heaven is our hope, because Christ has done this, because we claim him as our Lord. And so we come back to that poem I started with, Lent is to fast from strife, from old debate and hate, and to circumcise thy life. To circumcise is to cut something off. What is the hatred you need to cut off? What is the division you need to heal? <laughs> uh, I skipped a bit. I was going to talk about why I follow. Uh, but that's probably not as relevant as asking yourself why you follow. And it's going to look different for different people. And it's going to look different for each of you. At, it's going to look different at different times in your life. The reasons I follow now are not the same as why I followed when I was younger. But I continue to follow. Father, forgive us our sins as you forgive us. Amen.